Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. This is our fifth episode in the Precision Pioneers mini-series, which is focused on biotechnology companies that are innovating at the forefront of precision medicine. And I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Josh Friedman, who's the Senior Director of Clinical Research at Alnylam. Alnylam is focused on the discovery, development, and commercialization of a new technology. Well, it's probably not that new anymore, but it was new about 20 years ago and really in the clinical stage called RNA Interference and they're really focused on genetically defined diseases. Um, so in this mini-series of first four episodes, we've actually talked a lot about rare disease, but we haven't spent as much time on common disease. And one of the most common diseases of all is something called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and a severe form of it called NASH, um, which is one of the diseases that Al Nilam and Josh in particular are focused on. So we're going to spend some time talking about what NASH and NAFLD are, and also diving into RNA interference. But before we get kind of too deep into the weeds, Josh, first of all, welcome. And I'd love if you could give a one to two minute whistle stop tour of, of your career to date and how you found yourself uh, working on this. First, let me say it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I came at this uh, through, uh, I guess, what would be called the physician scientist route. I did MD PhD training at the University of Pennsylvania. And actually, there is a scientific through line for almost everything I've done, which is the control of gene expression. And so my PhD work was in that area focused on transcription factors. And uh, after completing that training, I did my clinical training in pediatrics and then in pediatric gastroenterology. And for about a decade after finishing that, I was on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, mostly running a lab, but also seeing patients. And in the lab, our focus was on the function of microRNA in the GI tract, in the liver, in liver development, and in cholestatic liver diseases, although not at that time NASH or fatty liver disease, and in other GI diseases such as inflammatory bowel disease and uh, eosinoph eosinophilic esophagitis. I uh, then made about uh, seven and a half years ago the switch to the pharmaceutical industry, and uh, I held roles at Janssen working on a variety of things. Uh, first, phase three clinical development of a monoclonal antibody therapy for inflammatory bowel disease. Then I moved to the research slash discovery side, uh, working again on inflammatory bowel disease, but also other immunologic diseases such as psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and then I came back to um, exclusively GI at Janssen, uh, leading a group dedicated to translational sciences for all, all of the GI programs at Janssen. And then most recently, I've come to Alnylam, where I'm focused on our hepatocyte-directed RNAi interference therapeutics, uh, including work in NASH. Great. And I wonder if we could just jump into RNAi and, and how it works, if you could give us an, an overview of the technology to people who aren't familiar with it. So the platform, as we call it, at Alnylam, uh, and is used by other RNA, RNA interference companies, takes advantage of a biological mechanism in all of our cells, essentially, that seems custom designed to allow for its use in drugs. The mechanism, as mentioned, is RNA interference. It uses something called a complex of protein called RISC, and it uses a template RNA to find messenger RNAs with complementary sequences. And then depending on the specifics of the sequence complementarity, either results in 
slicing or destruction of the target mRNA or inhibition of the translation of that mRNA into a protein. In both cases, it leads to suppression of the function of that gene. And so from a kind of technological standpoint, are you all printing out RNA sequences and then delivering them into the body to try to intercept the, you know, the, the RNA sequence that, you know, that's gone wrong in some way? Or, or how does it actually work to, to design and then deliver the, the RNA that's not produced in the body, but, but produced in the lab? Yeah, we don't use the word print, but it's a good metaphor. Uh, the RNAs are synthesized. And there's a few sort of major technological innovations that made the whole enterprise possible. And the first of those is using unnatural nucleic acid variants that provide um, resistance to degradation and can provide more specificity for the target. And so there's a whole world of chemistry dedicated to finding new variant nucleic acids uh, that can be used for that purpose and links between uh, nucleic acids. And uh, the second piece is in delivery. One mode of delivery that's very much in the public consciousness now is uh, lipid nanoparticles. And those are a way of encapsulating the RNA uh, in such a way that it can enter cells. RNA itself is highly charged, and by that virtue is gonna be very resistant to transport across membranes. But by uh, packaging it in an LNP, a lipid nanoparticle, that can be circumvented. So that's one mechanism. One uh, feature that actually comes into play in liver-directed therapies, including for NASH, is the addition of uh, or conjugation of a ligand to the siRNA. Uh, and in the case of alnylam and others, we conjugate the siRNA, which is double-stranded RNA, um, with some unnatural linkages and nucleic acids, as I've mentioned, uh, to a carbohydrate, galnac or N-acetylgalactosamine, and uh, we galnac for short. And uh, that takes advantage of, again, another biological function that almost seems custom designed for drug delivery. In this case, it's the presence of a receptor on hepatocyte membranes that binds the carbohydrate to galnac and not just binds it, but mediates uptake of the siRNA into endosomes from which the siRNA can then be delivered into the cytoplasm, integrated into risk, and functional in RNA interference. And in that case, a lipid nanoparticle is not necessary. Right, because you sort of have this natural docking station for the siRNA. Yeah, and so there's two major outcomes from that. The first is that for LNP-based RNA interference, the delivery is essentially intravenous. It goes to the entire body. Whereas for the galnac-conjugated siRNAs, the delivery can be subcutaneous. And just by virtue of the very specific uptake in hepatocytes, the drug is essentially delivered, cleared out of the plasma very quickly within hours and accumulates in hepatocytes. Amazing. Are there other parts of the body where these natural kind of uptake mechanisms exist, or, or is it the hepatocytes are, are kind of unique in, in this um, ease of uh, drug ability with this new technology? At this point, the, the hepatocyte-based delivery using Galnac is the first, and it may turn out to be the best, but who knows? There's uh, very active research uh, across the industry to look at, looking for other ligands that can be conjugated to siRNA, that would be the 
you know, the analog of hepatocyte delivery, but would mediate delivery to other cell types. Uh, so that's very desirable. I think that that more ligands will be found over time that do that. Um, and at Alnylam, we're looking for ligands that can drive delivery into neurons, for example, for uh, ner- nervous system diseases. That strikes me as um, that was going to be one of my follow-up questions, actually. That strikes me as one of the harder organ systems to deliver to because you've got to cross the blood-brain barrier. And um, and frankly, I don't have as good of an understanding of what, what all is going on and how you get through the blood-brain barrier, but it's I know it's challenging. So, yeah, so that's a double problem. You know, you take the problem of trying to find a ligand that will drive uptake into neurons, and then you've got the problem of the, getting that exposed to neurons across the blood-brain barrier. And at this point, there hasn't been a, a solution that solves both of those problems. And so the state of the art is intrathecal delivery. So the humans uh, delivering the drug break the blood-brain barrier through intrathecal delivery, and then we count on the ligands to drive uptake into neurons. Right, that absolutely makes sense. So so if we go on the, the liver example, I'd love to kind of talk through one or two specific genetically targeted NASH examples, um, because I think they're they're probably really illustrative of how the whole approach works. So I wonder if you could talk about either HSD 17B13, which is one of the genetic, um, turns out to be protective, I believe, um, variants in NASH and, and the flip side, the PNPLA3 gene, which uh, which carries of the, of the gene variant tend to develop NASH at a higher rate. I wonder if you could talk about one of those, maybe as an exemplar from start to finish of identifying the genetic target determining the approach from a design of the RNA perspective, and then ultimately how, how it gets delivered, and, and also even beyond what the clinical trials and, um, and, and path to that, that being um, in patients in, in a large scale might look like. Absolutely. Um, maybe I'll start by just explaining, uh, at the risk of stating the obvious, why we would pay attention to genetics in this case at all, in the case of a, a, of a prevalent disease like NASH, um, that doesn't have clear Mendelian genetics. You know, in the case of Mendelian genetics, uh, the defect is, is clear from the genetics, and usually the biological mechanism is equally clear in the case of a metabolic pathway that's disrupted. Uh, it can be pretty easy to connect the dots between the genetic variants. You often, most often, loss of function of, say, a metabolic enzyme and then the consequences. It's a little bit of a different question for a complex genetic disease. And so it is worth just sort of pausing to think about why focus on the genetics. And I'd say that the, the strongest reason is causality. I hesitate to say it because by the books, finding, say, a genetic association of a variant with disease does not prove causality. There could be reasons that uh, only indirectly link that gene to the disease. But it's, it's very strong evidence, um, and especially if there is some biological knowledge beyond the genetics that helps make that connection make sense. And so that makes it very powerful. And essentially what one does when using genetic association to look for gene targets is really take advantage of a huge human experiment in the form of human genetic variation across large populations. We make knockout mice to induce the same thing in in a laboratory setting. Of course, that's not possible in humans, so we use the variation that occurs naturally. So applying that to, to NASH, uh, you mentioned HSD-17B13, which 
I'll just call HSD because it's so many syllables. Uh, and, and as you pointed out, that emerged from genome-wide association studies in which large populations, cases and controls are compared uh, on the basis of the frequency of genetic variants. And the genome-wide piece is meant to apply, imply that we're looking at variants that are above a certain threshold of commonality, but occur across the whole genome. So there is no hypothesis a priori. It's just an open question of what variants are associated with the disease. In the case of HSD, the first finding was actually a finding of an HSD variant that's associated with lower levels of uh, blood tests, ALT and AST, that are markers of liver injury. And that was probably the first finding because there's often not a great deal of clinical information available associated with genetic data, uh, but something as simple as a basic commonly used lab test is one of the first things that will come up. It's likely that what was driving that was a little bit more specific because uh, we learned subsequently that there are associations between HSD variants and protection from alcoholic liver disease or alcoholic liver disease with cirrhosis and non-alcoholic liver disease and non-alcoholic liver disease with cirrhosis and actually a handful of other liver diseases as well. And so for a company like Alnylam, uh, this is, of course, very interesting because our platform is based on altering the expression of genes. So to take it a couple steps further for HSD, and, and a lot of the reason why we pursued it is that when looking more closely at the variant, and actually since then, other variants have been described with fit the same general category, uh, it looks like the variant is a loss of function variant. So in the case of the one that I've been referring to, the one that was initially described and has then been verified multiple times, the variant is a single nucleotide change that results in the loss of a splice site. And as you might imagine, that is likely to have disastrous consequences for the function of the resulting protein. And that's the way it looks for HSD. It looks like that, that loss of that splice site results in, of course, loss of the normal mRNA, loss of the normal protein, and the there is a protein that's produced, but at very low levels and in biochemical assays in vitro doesn't have the expected biochemical activity. So in short, that looks like a loss of function, which for, again, for a company like, like Alnylam rings a lot of bells because now that tells us that not only is there a variant in the gene associated with protection from the disease, but it's a loss of function, which after all is what the RNAi also confers is loss of function by suppressing the mRNA. That was a perfect fit for our platform, which of course also mediates loss of function through RNA interference. And so that's what led us to pursue what became ALNHSD. That's really great. So it sounds like there's a lot of parallels to one of the very first genetic-driven drug discovery um, examples, which was PCSK9, right, where genetic studies led to discovering individuals who had loss of function variants in a gene and then had low cholesterol levels and ultimately lower levels of heart disease. So so some of the early um, cholesterol medications were born out of this insight. But I think the interesting thing here is you're not, um, you're not targeting people who carry that genetic variant. You're, you're actually just using the genetic insight to target everyone else, right? And, and naturally drive those levels low. So is, is that right that the therapy could be basically applied to anyone who has the disease who doesn't have who doesn't already have naturally low levels due to the, the genetic knockout. 
So first, the, the analogy to cholesterol is an apt one. And in fact, it's more than just an analogy because Alnylam developed siRNA against uh, PCSK9, which became in Clisaran, which is now in the hands of Novartis having uh, purchased the medicines company. Uh, as far as the patient population goes, that's still a, a question that's considered or being considered during the clinical development. I would say that common sense would say that based on what I've said, the relatively uncommon individuals who are homozygous for the loss of function HSD variant probably would not be good candidates for the drug because they've already lost function. So there's probably not much further to go with the drug. And clearly they have found a way or their liver has found a way to develop NAFLD or NASH if they're potentially eligible, uh, independent of that. So that's the only thing else I would, only other thing I would say about the patient population based on genetics. What percentage of people approximately are carrying the the double knockout and and most protected? And and does the single knockout of one functioning copy and one non-functioning confer any any protection at all? So it looks to be fairly linear as much as you can say with two alleles. So there is protection with uh, loss of one allele. And indeed, just based on the numbers, that's what drove the initial genetic finding because those people are much more common. Depending on ancestry, that variant occurs in about 20 or 25% of the population. So it's fairly common. Uh, and uh, homozygotes are, of course, less common, something a little bit less than f- or uh, 5% of the population, depending on ancestry. That's great to know. And one of the things that uh, I think is a, is a second fascinating uh, kind of piece of evidence that comes from these large-scale genetic studies is it tells you that it's very likely to be safe to knock it out as well, because 5% of people are walking around with this gene knocked out in every cell of their body. So chances are nothing catastrophic will will happen from knocking it out just in, in the liver, which I think is quite a cool um, insight that you can get from these analyses. Yeah, that's a terrific point. Um, and in general, when I introduced the idea of using genetics or finding targets, I did focus on efficacy, but it is possible to get data on efficacy and safety, or in some cases, it may just be that the genetics doesn't tell you anything about efficacy per se, because there's just not available evidence. But there may be a population who have completely lost function for HSD or in other diseases and other genes, and uh, appear to be generally well. And you're right, then at least you've learned something valuable about safety. Absolutely. It'd be great maybe to discuss the second, um, a second gene. There are, there are I'm losing track of all the genes that are popping out of the genetic studies in NFLD and NASH, but one of the most common uh, ones that's studied is PNPLA3. I wonder if, and I think it's one that you all are also working on an, uh, an approach to target. I wonder if you could talk about that one, how it's different from HSD and, and what the strategy is there. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I should say that I might have mentioned earlier is that our work on HSD and on PNPLA3 is part of a partnership with Regeneron. And so we're working hand in hand together on both of those targets. Uh, PMPLA3 is a little bit of a different story, as you, as you mentioned, in that the genetic finding is of a variant that causes a missense mutation, a change of one amino acid residue that is associated with increased risk of liver disease, particularly non-alcoholic liver disease uh, and fatty liver disease uh, in general. Uh, and so a little bit of a different situation than HSD. Um, there is a bit more known about how to connect that variant to disease. And this is a good moment, in fact, to take a step back and say that 
perhaps it's surprising, perhaps it isn't, but it, it fits nicely that both HSD and PMPLA3 are proteins that are associated with lipid droplets in hepatocytes. So that's that that makes a lot abundant sense for genes associated with fatty liver disease. And in fact, it's true for several of the others, uh, other genes that have been linked to NAFLD and NASH. And so for PMPLA3, we know a bit more about the sort of the biochemistry, which is that the variant makes PMPLA3 resistant to proteolytic degradation in the liver cell. And so normally PMPLA3 levels are actually quite low, although there is some PMPLA3 associated with the lipid droplets. Uh, The presence of the mutation results in in resistance to degradation, accumulation of PMPLA3, which might otherwise be harmless, except that it titrates out another protein, uh, CGI58, which is required for lipolysis of those droplets. And so it's quite a chain of events, but uh, the excess PMPLA3 titrates out another protein, and the end result is that is impaired lipolysis of lipid in those lipid droplets. There's probably a bit more to it than that, in that the the accumulation of PMPLA3 on the droplets may also change something about the composition or the surface of those droplets, and so that's the subject of ongoing work, but it all still makes biological sense. Great. That's really clear. And, and, and then the approach for you all is, um, is to attempt to knock down the, the levels of the PNPLA3 uh, transcript to, to close to the, the normal wild-type level. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, we know that PNPLA3 protein is elevated in NASH, even in the absence of the risk variant. And so our hypothesis is that reducing PNPLA3 certainly would be helpful in carriers of the risk variant, but we anticipate that it'll be helpful in the general population as well. That's great. How, how do you think about designing clinical trials or, or you know, clinical studies in each of these two cases? Because it, it seems like the HSD case would be straightforward because anyone with NASH um, could potentially take part, whereas PNPLA3 is more challenging because you'd need to find people with the with the rare genetic subtypes but I, th- there's the big caveat which is we know that nash is chronically underdiagnosed and it's has the moniker of the silent killer um, because the majority of people who have the disease um, often don't find out until till very late in the game so i wonder if you could talk about some of the challenges with what might on the face of it seem like a straightforward common disease to to test a new medicine in but i, I think isn't as as straightforward as as people often think Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question. One might think that compared to, say, a rare disease, running a clinical trial in a prevalent disease like NASH should be straightforward. And maybe once in a ton of time it was, but in practice it's not. That's partly because of a variety of reasons. Uh, The clinical endpoints require liver biopsy, at least for registration. And so now you've got not just a, a drug trial, but you've got an invasive procedure. Um, naturally for a common disease for which there are no approved medical therapies, there are many investigational studies ongoing. And so even though it's a very big pie, so to speak, a population of people with NASH, it's divided many ways. So that makes uh, clinical trials a challenge. And then to your question, when you add in the requirement for some kind of genetic uh, population identification, uh, then you're slicing the pie a bit more. 
And without getting into specifics, I think that the genetics are very relevant, both for clinical development of HSD and PMPLA3. And that does add a challenge, not an insurmountable one by any stretch, but it just adds on another um, criterion to consider in both the, the design, the patient population, and in, in the analysis of any results when they come. Makes sense. And I guess to go even broader than NFLD and NASH, you, you all have a, I think it are undergoing a transition as a company from prior, you know, prior to the last few years, focusing almost exclusively on rare diseases. And I know you're continuing to develop therapies for rare diseases, but now you're, you're starting to develop therapies in common diseases like NASH and familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, And I have a, you know, I, I think a lot of people share this view that those common diseases actually ultimately are genetic constellations of of um, rare subtypes. Is that the way that you all see the world? And ultimately, things like familial hypercholesterolemia and NASH will be broken down into genetically defined subtypes of, of common disease? Or, or do you see it a little bit differently? I think it's going to be a mix. Um, so for example, I think you brought up the case of hypercholesterolemia and PCSK9, where a relatively rare genetic finding pointed to a therapy that applies broadly across populations. So I I think that will be a big part of it. I think that as we dig deeper, it will be a matter of separating subpopulations defined by genetics and presumably other features also. And in that case, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, From one standpoint, the potential population that can be treated with a given drug may be smaller than the broad population. But on the other hand, that's sort of what we've been striving for as an industry in many ways, which is precision medicine, to find the right drug for the right person. It adds a burden in the clinical development and in a way reduces, may reduce the market for a given drug. But ultimately, that's the way we have to go. Because if we treat everything with too broad a brush, we will constantly run into limitations on efficacy or maybe safety issues. Do you see RNA interference or other similar approaches potentially being applied in earlier and earlier in a disease progression? Because it, it seems to me like there may be a thinking about the end states of precision medicine. There's uh, transformative treatments for rare Mendelian diseases where you can understand and, and correct the biology. Um, but it may also be possible to fine tune gene expression in some way to to either delay or, or prevent uh, entirely some more common complex disease. Because there, there are, to your point, there are some diseases that we know are, there is no single genetic driver and they're extremely complex. And, and may, maybe that tweaking three or four genes is the, is the solution rather than just tweaking one. Do, do you think that's a, a future that we're likely to live in or, or are there some big challenges to overcome before that's possible? Yeah, you raise a, a couple, at least a couple of big questions there. I think that insofar as genetics points us more towards, towards the root causes of diseases, then the argument can be made that those should be, uh, be higher up in the line or approach, be first line or close to the first line because they can help prevent uh, all this or some of the downstream uh, consequences of disease. So, you know, to put it more specifically, uh, in the case of NASH, for example, if you could prevent steatosis, well, then that might prevent steatohepatitis, which then might prevent fibrosis, cirrhosis, and hepatocellular carcinoma, rather than waiting for the patient to get worse. And that touches on 
attention that exists in drug development across lots of diseases, or I should say actually drug treatment across many diseases, which is the top-down versus the bottom-up approach. Uh, the bottom-up is the most common traditionally, and that's where we, we treat patients with the drugs that have historically been shown to be somewhat effective. If they were completely effective, there wouldn't be any other lines of drugs, but of course they're not. Uh, and wait to bring out, quote unquote, the bigger guns until the patient gets worse. The other side standpoint, which is probably closer to the patient standpoint, which is why hold back? Why not get the drug disease under the maximum possible control first and, uh, and not waste time waiting for, say, I'm speaking as the patient, waiting for me to get sicker? The countervailing tension is that um, the economics, the existing older drugs are often generic, they're cheaper, they're also more familiar. And so there is a resistance to switch from those to more advanced therapies from the level of economics and cost. On the third hand, if in the long run, the more advanced therapies provide better disease control, then the economics may actually work out that that is a cheaper approach. So that's a complicated question. You also touched on the question of combination therapies, and, and there I'd be speaking much more speculatively, but in general, I agree that I think it is going to be necessary to tweak the system at multiple different sort of pressure points uh, for some complex diseases. And um, that's a challenge also because um, that doesn't scale all that well in terms of drug development costs. Uh, and so I think there is going to be need, may need to be some ways of lowering the hurdles to taking that approach as it becomes more necessary. Four really good points. Uh, one thing I meant to act actually mention earlier around the cost point was was what does it, roughly speaking, actually cost today to deliver an RNA interference therapy? Is it tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands to, to actually manufacture and deliver? It's not manufactured kind of individually like like some of the incredibly expensive therapies. So I think that's a it's probably a good thing. But what is getting that cost down a, a kind of big part of the next decade of, of development, or has it actually gotten down to a level that it's, um, that it's pretty feasible today? Yeah, you, t you touch on an important point. I can't speak to specific numbers, but I can speak to themes, which is that for RNAi, cost of goods is a significant factor, or what, what's called cost of goods. Uh, for some drugs, the production of the drug is actually not very expensive. There is still a course of cost and uh, a, a cost associated with the development of that drug that in some way gets reflected in the price, but maybe the cost of manufacturing itself is a minor factor. For RNAi, generally speaking, cost of goods is actually a significant factor that gets uh, figured into the pricing of the drug. And on top of that, there's also a bit of a manufacturing bottleneck in the, in the sense that there is actually globally a given capacity for synthesizing RNAi therapies. Uh, Alnylam has embarked on its own investment in capacity to manufacture drugs, and uh, um, but it also relies on external manufacturers. And so at the moment, this can change, but at the moment, the industry is bumping its head a little bit against a, a ceiling of manufacturing. So that manufacturing and cost are still significant factors for RNAi. If history is any guide, as the demand goes up, then capacity for manufacturing will go up and cost will go down. We're just coming up on time here. I have one more question that uh, would be great. Maybe we could wrap up on. As we mentioned earlier, you all have 
proven really that you can develop transformative med- medicines in the context of rare disease. And you're well on your way, it seems like, in more common diseases. Um, I'd love if you could just paint a picture of, if you all continue to be successful, what the future of genetically targeted medicine could look like in five years, 10 years, 15, whatever the horizon is you'd like to take. How will we diagnose and treat genetically defined diseases differently? And what will that mean for, for patients in the healthcare system? So, uh, you know, I think that uh, it's inevitable that genetics will become more and more of a part of how we diagnose and treat disease. Uh, it's, it's a little bit tricky because almost by definition, outside of Mendelian diseases, the effect sizes of a given variant tend to be small. Uh, even trying to put together the effects of multiple variants hasn't borne very much fruit in, in practice. Uh, so I'm thinking here of things like um, polygenic risk scores, which um, uh, have shown some use sort of in, in more academic research, but to my knowledge, haven't made great headway in clinical practice. Of course, lots of things don't work until they work. And so I'm still, I still think that's very much something that's worth pursuing. Uh, so I think that it, it will be more and more part of the practice. and. Um, and I think that that progress will occur both on the front of rare diseases um, that may be more highly penetrant and uh, common diseases. Uh, and I know that from Al Nylum's standpoint, I don't, I cannot speak for the company, but uh, my sense and is that we are committed to addressing medical need in both rare and common diseases if we think we have a scientific advantage being able to do that. Yeah, it seems from an outsider's perspective that you have a tool that can be applied um, almost anywhere. Um, and I'm sure there are some challenges around delivery that we discussed earlier and, and other things that um, that you'll need to optimize on the edges, but it seems like the future is bright. So just thank you so much, Josh, for your time. I, I really enjoyed having the chance to speak with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.